Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here, and it's wonderful to be able to share. So I'm not going to be sitting down. This, this, is, this is actually the longest of the three talks, but I don't expect to, to sit down. It's just that I don't trust my Bible because it's yeah, on this thing. That's, why, that's the only reason I'm bringing the chair up, just, to, just in case you're kind of thinking, I'm going to have a bit of a, I'm having a bit of a sort of a sit down at different times. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, have, I, I just want to have make sure that, so that we actually can look at the Bible here, but I, I don't trust this thing here. So I do trust, did I say don't trust the Bible? Is that what I said? <laughs> Sorry, this is not a good start, yeah. <laughs> this is a very bad start to the weekend, yeah. Um, yeah, well, you can judge for yourself if I trust the Bible by the end of these talks, yeah. Anyway, so yes, I do trust the Bible, uh, and I'm using this chair to hold it because I don't trust this, this stand, just to clarify. Um, there ends the comedy show, <laughs> so now, now we will begin. Uh, yeah. Now, the famous author Mark Twain said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's how you feel about your paid work or your work during the week. Is that how we should view our work? Is a necessary a v- evil which should be shunned and avoided at all possible? Others have expressed similar uh, sentiments. Jerome K. Jerome said, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. But others have thought very differently about work. The great American industrialist Henry Ford said, There is joy in work. There is no happiness except in the realisation that we have accomplished something. French novelist George Sand said, Work is not man's punishment. It It is his reward and strength and, pl- and his pleasure. Or Theodore Roosevelt said, far and away, far and away, the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. So what do we make of work? Is it a necessary evil or the best prize that life has to offer? Something that we can sit by idly and watch from a distance or something which is our reward, strength and pleasure? Well, this weekend, we're going to be spending time thinking about our lives at work. Uh, Today, we're going to be thinking about our purpose of our work, and today's actually kind of three talks in one, so it's actually going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to be covering through, kind of a biblical theology of work in some ways, but thinking about the purpose of my work. What is my work for? This afternoon, we're going to think about who we are at work, and then tomorrow, we're going to think about how we share our faith or proclaim the gospel in the workplace. So as we begin, let's consider the purpose of our work. What is your work for? How would you answer that question? What's the purpose of your work? What's it for? Well, I think that the script, clear in Scripture that a key purpose of our work is, of our paid labour, is to feed ourselves. That's what the Apostle Paul says, and I'll actually use my Bible now. So, as I, so in 1 Thessalonians, as, as uh, Safi just read, so 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12, you just want to, open, just want to make sure you have that open. Just It says... Uh, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you would not be dependent on anybody. Now, so notice what Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to do. What should they do? Well, verse 11, mind your own business, work with your hands, so that the goal, the purpose of this is, what, verse 12, you will not be dependent on anybody. He said, look, get your head down, work hard, earn your keep, basically, get a job. And in doing this, Paul has demonstrated a key purpose of our work. We earn to our keep, to feed ourselves, to not be dependent on others. 
Now, English preacher William Taylor, in his book, Revolutionary Work, claims this as the key purpose of work. He says, we work to feed our face. It's as simple as that. We work to feed our face. It's as simple as that. So work is instrument. It's an instrument for us to feed our face, to feed ourselves. And this view of work is consistent with the Old Testament pattern of work. So indeed, Paul echoes the wisdom of the, old, of, uh, of the Proverbs, where the thrifty, hard worker is praised and the sluggardly, sluggardly, lazy buffoon is not. And so Paul himself demonstrates this. He works not to be a burden. He says this to the Thessalonians and he exemplifies the wise and the prudent in the book of Proverbs. He works with his own hands. He even works as a tent maker, which you can see in Acts chapter 18. So work was instrumental. It's an instrument to not be a burden on others. It's an instrument so that we can earn money to buy food. Now, the, the interesting, the issue of idleness seemed to be a bit of a challenge with the Thessalonian church. Notice Paul actually addresses the same issue in his second letter to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 7 to 10. You can flick that, if you're a quick Bible flip, you can quickly look at that, but, but note particularly verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So, if you hear Paul's exhortation here, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, implying a clear connection between work and feeding your face. Now, it does raise a, a big other question, is why weren't the Thessalonians particularly interested in working? What was, so concerned about, what was so concerning about their idleness for them to not work with their hands? Now, Paul here isn't addressing unemployment, but worklessness. They had the ability work to work, but they chose not to. So why was this? Or well, some think that maybe the Thessalonians thought the end of the world was so near that they just should give up on the day-to-day. -day. It's kind of possible, but it's more likely that I think they adopted a Greek view of work, and the Greek view of work had a very, very different purpose. See, for the Greeks, notably, say, thinkers like Aristotle, the purpose of work was actually leisure. They thought that the activity of work out of necessity was demeaning, corrupted the soul, and took away from the development of virtue which was the true goal of human existence. So Aristotle, possibly as the philosopher that he was, felt that people needed leisure time for political participation and the study of philosophy. And you needed leisure to do that, which meant that work was held in the lowest of esteem. So for the idea of work as a duty, as a worthwhile instrument to feed your face, as the Bible teaches, now that was inconceivable to Greek philosophers. So perhaps the, this Greek cultural perspective, this Greek philosophy, purpose of work, had influenced the believers in Thessalonica, which is interestingly in Greece. So Paul responds with something completely contrary to the Greek view of work, but completely consistent with the Jewish view of work. It's interesting that the Greek view of work was very similar to Mark Twain's view of work as well, a necessary evil to be avoided. So a key biblical purpose for our work is to feed ourselves. We work to feed our face. It's as simple as that. But is it as simple as that? Because if it was, this talk would finish now and we can all go and have some morning tea. And we can have some leisure, perhaps, to reflect on philosophy <laughs> and politics, which is probably very appropriate today. Is... <laughs> this is... that Adam, was it? It's <laughs> cheering on the election, yes, that's right. Election, election, yeah. Um, is, is this simply the sole purpose, or the primary purpose of our work, to feed our face? What's the problems with this view? Open it up for, for comments. Problems with this view. Simply to feed your face. Not, not, that's a key purpose, 
but the, being the simple purpose, what are the problems? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. God could just make trees, we could just pluck it off, bump. It's, yeah, okay, that's a yeah, good point. Yep, excellent. Other, other thoughts? Why? What other? Adam? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting kind of perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but we can actually consume more than we can, we can actually produce more than we can consume. So, what do we do there? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Paul? That's a good point. I'll come to that. That's point um, three, I think. So, yeah, we'll come to that one. Uh, yes, but, there is, but there's frustration in work as well. Sometimes it's not so simple to feed your face. Yeah. Other f- very self-serving? Yeah, in, in what sense? Want to unpack that? And not care about others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, and we'll be coming to that in a second. Yeah, but any other what other reflections? Yep. Yes, that's right. Well, it actually, overlooks some other seemingly valuable things that we get from our work, isn't it? Rep- reputation, fulfilment, satisfaction, uh, even some achievements that we might get in our work, etc. It seems like well, they seem to be are they are they valuable? Can we have those? Are we allowed to achieve, satisfied, be satisfied in a, day, a good day's work? That's right. It's a good point. Yep. Other other reflections. Other. Limitations with this view of work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So there's no sense of assessment of gifts or opportunities, etc. We'll all end up just being, I don't know, probably farmers, I suppose, perhaps. Maybe that was, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Jen, yep. Yeah, well, what about unemployment? Exactly. So if you're unemployed, does that mean, what does that mean? I was made redundant after nine months of my first job out of uni. So what does that mean? Like, do I, what do I do there? Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Sophie, yeah? Oh, potentially, although the point is that you still, you could still earn money from that, except not, if you're not very good in creative services, perhaps, and, and, no, and no one wants to buy your artwork or anything, or that, that, that's perhaps one of the challenges, but, but still, you can still use that as an instrument to buy things, but I suppose, you, but you've touched on a broader, a, yeah, that, yes, yeah, but you touched on a broader point, which I think, well, what about unpaid work? Do how, if you're working, is, is that still work? Um, when Di was at home with our young children, she worked pretty hard, <laughs> like, uh, that, uh, there's a sense of which this can actually overlook unpaid work or um, diminish the dignity and value of that choice or suggest perhaps that you're not very valuable if you're not doing stuff that earns money. Uh, I think we need to have a broader definition of work because I think a Christian definition of work includes all work, voluntary work, work of students, work of full-time carers, labour perhaps we might do in retirement because I think that's actually a more full understanding of work rather than simply earning a paycheck so that I can feed my face. Um, what about if you are retired or you're a student? Does that mean that you're no longer working? Some great ideas. There's some of the things we can continue, but I'm going to push on. We can see that, yes, work does have instrumental benefits, but there's more. There's a greater purpose to our work, which secular writers, I think, rarely appreciate, and unfortunately, Christians often miss. And this greater purpose is actually found in the very first chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Now we see in Genesis 1 that, uh, that there's a, a breathtaking description of origins. 
It outlines how the universe was made uh, with order and purpose, culminating in humans being made as the pinnacle of creation, bearing the image of God. And then in the second creation account, here in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 5, the narrative continues with the scene being set, as Sophie read before. And so it says here in verse 5 that no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, uh, and no plant had sprung up. Now, why is this? Why had no shrub yet appeared? Now, there's two reasons given. If you look here in the second half of verse 5, there's two reasons. It says, For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to till, to work the ground. There were no shrubs first because the Lord God had not sent rain, and yet the second reason, there was no one to work, to cultivate the ground. Now, this is a slightly intriguing development in the, in the narrative of Genesis, isn't it? Because if we, what do we remember about God's creative abilities in Genesis chapter 1? Well, He can create effortlessly, can't He? With a word, let there be light, and there was. Let there be sky, and there was. Let there be land, and there was. So God is certainly capable of making things grow. So it's highly strange here that in verse 5, we learn that no shrub had appeared on the earth, not because God was incapable of making it happen. Now, it's intriguing that it actually appears that God had, intends to use natural purposes here, natural processes here to make things grow, i.e. that to make it rain. So God intended a world with a water cycle. But more importantly for our topic today is that God intends to use a human, a man here, to till the earth and to cultivate the earth and enable shrubs to grow. Even though God is immeasurably powerful, here He elects to create shrubs involving the cultivating efforts of a man. And I think this in many ways is paradigmatic for our work. God made the man, a human, to work and care for what He has made. And this is exactly what the Lord does in verse 15. In some ways, since He's created to work, So in verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So the purpose of his work is to be a gardener, a cultivator. Now I'm sure that God would have been an excellent gardener or cultivator himself, but we see he has elected to use a man to work and care for his creation. We aren't made to sleep like 20 hours a day like lions, we're actually made to work. This is a unique role given to us as humans. English preacher and author John Stott said that God did not create the planet Earth to be productive on its own. Human beings had to subdue and develop it. Or another popular author and speaker, my colleague Andrew Laird, he says, God could have provided us with ready-made chairs or already harvested crops or excavated gold. He could have given us orange juice in a bottle. But in His great wisdom, God instead said to humanity, you take the oranges and just see what you might be able to create with them. God plants, but where to work the garden? Now, it reminds me of an Irish joke, and this one actually is relevant. I can use an Irish Hal Roach joke. I'm not sure if anyone's ever heard of Hal Roach, but you may not want to hear any more after this. But anyway, there's an Irish joke which uh, says, Murphy had a beautiful garden, and everyone used to admire it, particularly the parish priest. Every time he passed the garden, he'd look out, and he'd say, my God, Murphy, he says, the Lord and yourself are partners. And every morning he'd pass and say that. Murphy got a bit fed up, and the next time the priest came by and said, this is a beautiful garden, and you and yourself, the Lord and yourself are partners. And Murphy responded by saying, well, that may be, Father, but you should have seen this place when the Lord had it on his own. <laughs> Through our work, humanity and God together care for God's world. It's a form of partnership, of cooperation. 
Now, we might feel uncomfortable about using the term cooperation with God, but would that perhaps undermine God's glory or His sovereignty? Well, no, I think actually it instead reflects the dignity and the status afforded to humans. It gives us great significance and purpose knowing that we have been created to work, to steward, to till, to cultivate what God has made. And this is in stark contrast to other ancient stories of work. In Enuma Elish, the ancient Babylonian creation myth, the chief god Marduk shares that his purpose in creating humanity, he says, I will bring into being a lowly, primitive creature. I will call him man. To him shall be charged the labor so that the gods may have rest. So in Babylonian thinking, work was a lowly activity, not worthy of the gods. So in Babylonian and Greek thinking, work is a lowly, servile activity. The goal was leisure or rest. Work couldn't possibly be good, could it? It's in it to this world that Genesis 1 opens with an extraordinary, radical portrayal of God as a worker and humans are created to cooperate with God in the functioning and cultivation of His world. And this idea of cooperation with God was important to the Reformers, most notably Martin Luther, who saw that our work as one of God's main ways of sustaining the social order and as a means of God's providence. This is a really important point because he's basically saying that work is a means of loving others and being a conduit for God's ongoing love, provision and care for the world. Luther describes this as being the masks of God. For example, in Psalm 147.13, we read, God strengthening the bars of the gates and bringing peace. Now, Luther saw that, that, this, that, that everything that helps protect us and bring peace, for example, good government, good city ordinances, a good police force, as being masks by which God strengthened the bars and brought peace. And so we see here God-given purpose for our work, which is to love and serve others by cultivating the world that God has made. This goes back to exactly to the point that Warwick made, that work is no longer selfish, but selfless to serve others. Now, work does have instrumental purposes. We do work to earn money to ensure that we're fed. We're not to be a burden on others, not to be idle. We work to achieve. We can work to find satisfaction, enjoyment, fulfillment. But these ideas are inadequate as an overriding and overarching purpose for our work. In his book, Joined Up Life, ethicist Andrew Cameron says, modern people, Christians included, have become poor at articulating the primary outcomes of their work. When asked, what's your work for, most can offer its secondary outcomes of fulfillment, reputation and consumption. Few consider how their work related to, related to, is related to or create, sorry, few consider how their work related to or, or created social order. Cameron goes on to warn Christians not to fall into the trap that non-Christians do of focusing only on the instrumental nature of work, even a Christianized version of it. He goes on to say, pastors need to say much more about others' work than it enables you to feed yourself and to support the work of God. For that message would erroneously imply that consumption is the primary outcome of work. So if we view work, the purpose of work as of service or of love is far more overarching and far greater. And this also affirms the dignity and the place of unpaid, unpaid work because everyone's work affects and benefits everyone else. Work is far greater than, which, than that which I do to earn money. We work to serve, we work to love, we don't simply work 
to feed our face. So consider your job. How does your work cultivate God's world for the good of all? Now, I used to work in insurance. Now, what does insurance mean? There's a few people smiling. Um, some might think, you know, insurance is just simply overcharging and denying claims. That's kind of what it's about. But if we think of work in simply selfish terms about the challenge, the fulfillment, the money I make, which wasn't actually a huge amount in general insurance, but it's going to be deflating and defeating and empty. But something that I never quite saw in my time working in insurance was that at its heart, my job is to provide security and peace of mind for people who love their cars. I help people avoid unnecessary financial difficulty in the event of a theft or accident. It's actually a way of caring, isn't it? An expression of love. So too often we fail to adequately answer the question, what is my work for? How does it love or serve people? How do I fulfill God's purpose in me and cultivate this little bit of land entrusted to me? Now, business author and journalist Tony Schwartz was puzzled as to why he noticed such a large difference between two groups of managers of two large global companies. One encounter was dull, devoid of any energy and a pure downer. He had an eight-hour meeting with a bunch of Google executives. It was inspiring. Now, why was the great difference? Well, he says this, the Googlers feel that they're contributing to something meaningful and larger than themselves, and the other executives evince to no passion whatsoever for their work. So purpose. Having a sense of purpose was the difference. But listen to how he described his purpose. He says, the most reliable source of purpose, I'm convinced, is being of service to others. Giving more than you take, which turns out not just to make most of us feel good, but also good about ourselves. In short, it's a powerful source of energy. He says, if you're a teacher, a social worker, or a nurse, your work is intrinsically of service to others. But there are many ways to be of service. Over the years, I've been inspired by parking lot attendants, shoe shiners, elevator operators, TSA agents, and a smiling, upbeat clerk in the Department of Motor Vehicles. They've found a way, in whatever the intrinsic limitations of their jobs, to add value in the world, to make meaning one person at a time. As Marianne Edelman Wright once put it, we must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, ignore the small daily differences which we can make, which we can make, which over time add up to the big differences we can often can't foresee. So Schwartz has found the most reliable source of purpose of being of service to others. Love your neighbour. And you'll also notice how distinctive having a clear purpose was. Schwartz could see the difference and the attraction of the Google executives and they, who knew that they were contributing to something bigger than themselves. Schwartz has seen something here, that service of, being some, of something bigger it kind of works. It's powerful. It gives purpose. But his vision is incomplete because we are privileged by God's Spirit to know the reason why service works because we know the full story. We know God's story, that we have been created to serve, to cooperate with God in the cultivation of the world. And once grasped and applied, knowing our purpose is to love and care for others, cooperating with God in building society, this will be attractive and distinctive and inspiring, as Tony Schwartz has noticed. And this all sounds great and inspiring, and doesn't it? We're all going to get out there, yeah, I want to love and serve and change the world, etc. This all sounds great, but there is still another problem. While service of others is a clearly a biblical purpose of work, does this accord with your experience 
of work, a cheerful cooperation with God in the happy cultivation of the world, creating a, a happy and coherent society. Is that, is that my attempt at sort of, sort of liturgical dance then? Sorry, yeah. Um, is, that, is that how it is? You, you, when you wake up in the morning, you sort of bounce around, jumping off into the, um, the morning, about to change the world, etc. Is that your experience of work? Mm. Yeah, I doubt it. Indeed, any reflection on work must acknowledge what happened in Genesis 3 and the entry of sin into the world. In Genesis 3, due to the rebellion of the first man and his wife, God brings three curses on the serpent, the woman, and the man. And the man's relationship with the ground is now cursed. Where there was once a happy cooperation with a yielding earth, now cooperation is characterized by toil, sweat, and frustration. So we need to be careful of understanding what exactly is cursed in Genesis 3. Now, I think it was Paul who made this comment that, unlike what Alan de Botton says and other people think, it's not work itself that is the punishment for this entry of sin into the world. That's more like the Greek view of work. Work is still valuable, it's just harder. Work will be frustrating, and I don't think you need me to stand up here to tell you that. I think, now I actually think, this is a bit controversial, but I actually think that the curse of Genesis is most clearly displayed in the IT department <laughs> and the help desk. Okay, you don't believe me now. Anyone here who has never had a problem with a computer, put your hand up. Never, ever had a problem with a computer? Okay, I rest my case. <laughs> work is frustrating. We work all day, my server fails, and you lose a whole day's work. In fact, my worst ever day, working day of life was after I had a problem with my computer, the help desk took my computer, rebuilt it, and wiped three weeks' worth of work. Work is frustrating. Work is toil. Even great athletes and and footballers and famous singers toil. Famous singers have to sing the same songs over and over and over again. Madonna once said that she wasn't sure she could sing Holiday or Like a Virgin again unless someone paid her like $30 million, (laughs) which they probably did. But, uh, But separation from God has meant frustration and toil in our work. And this frustration of work is explored further in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where we see four examples of where we cannot find meaning in our work. The passage shows uh, four key motivations often to give us to work, which are achievements, reputation, consumption, and fulfillment. Often people try to attempt to find purpose of work in each of these things. And what does the teacher of Ecclesiastes make of these things? If you look up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Well, he actually says that they ultimately all fail. Now, achievements are satisfying and enjoyable, but if they aren't the primary focus of our work, if we make them the focus of our work, work will become empty and meaningless. Look at verse 4. The teacher has worked out many great things, great projects, reservoirs, farming, gardens, parks. He's been a civil engineer, a farmer, an entrepreneur, a businessman, a gardener, all at the same time. He's achieved a lot, and yet he describes his achievements as fleeting, like chasing after the wind like sand running through your fingers. This is a bit of a a question. Has anyone here ever heard of a guy called Hayden Bunton? You've heard of Hayden Bunton? He played AFL football. football. What did he do? No, he didn't win four. Okay, has anyone heard of a guy called Ian Stewart? He played AFL, that's right. (laughs) Anyone else heard of Hayden Bunton though? Aaron, you've heard of Hayden Bunton? There's, There's three? Okay, anyone, anyone here heard of Dusty Martin? Hands, hands up. Who's he, he, okay. Dustin Martin won one Brownlow medal. Hayden Bunton won three. And yet, three people know him? Four people, maybe? 
Hayden Bunton was one of four Australian rules players who have won the Brownlow Medal three times. Bunton has a statue in front of the MCG. He's a legend, a guy at the pinnacle of the AFL, and most of you have absolutely no idea who he is. Great achievements are fleeting. And I reckon in 100 years' time, no one will know who Dusty Martin was, even though most of us have an idea. I could go on. There's plenty of other examples of people who you think are great, but no one knows in 100 years, 50 years' time. Achievements are satisfying and enjoyable, but if this, this, this isn't the primary focus of our work. If we make this the focus of our work, we'll find it ultimately empty and meaningless, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes does. The teacher goes on in Ecclesiastes and shows other motivations for work, reputation, consumption, and fulfillment, like these, are ultimately meaningless. Verse 9. Uh, I consumed... I made, sorry, verse 9. I made a reputation. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He consumed. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He was fulfilled. Again, verse 10. My heart took delight in all my work. It sounds like the ideal job, doesn't it? fulfilling work which enables me to do what I like where everyone respects me. Yet con after, concluding all, after going through all this, he concludes in verse 11, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Achievements for reputation, fulfillment and consumption are all fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow, like sand running through the fingers. If we make these the ultimate motivations for our work, it will not satisfy. Be like chasing after wind. So as we take stock here, so while serving others is a key motivation and purpose for our work, it'll be affected by sin and frustration. No matter what type of work you do, there will always be a frustration and a challenge. You'll invariably have to turn on a computer. But I think that seeing a greater purpose, knowing that we are serving something bigger, can help mitigate against some of these frustrations of work. Now as we're kind of drawing to a few of these threads together, we move on to the final point here now. There's another place which I think we can see a vision for our work uh, and a purpose for our work and a motivation to how we work is actually in the future. The future can shape and give purpose to our work now. Now, a number of years ago, I interviewed um, Dr. Justin Denham, who's an infectious disease physician and a medical director of the Victorian Tuberculosis Program. I interviewed him for bigger questions. You can check it out. It's episode 65. It's a cracker. Um, now... He shared probably the clearest and most powerful testimony of how the biblical future shapes, motivates, and brings purpose to his work now. Now, his job is to manage and ultimately eliminate tuberculosis and bring healing to our world. Yet for Justin, a key motivation for his work is the characteristics and priorities of God and God's vision for the future. We see this vision, for example, in Revelation 21.4. It's a, a, a beautiful verse where... God says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This vision means no more tuberculosis and a, whole, a world that is whole and healed. And so then Justin responded to a question that I asked him, which is, why bother doing what he does? And he says, well, he does see that his work is loving his neighbour and serving others by bringing about some physical healing now. But for him, it's the future which really provides purpose and a picture that animates his work now. He says, but I think there's also a bigger healing, a broader healing, a more holistic way of being whole and well and healthy. And that's something that we'll actually never see in this world. It's something that following Jesus, though, gives me a vision of what's possible for people to be truly whole in a physical and relational and spiritual sense. 
something that goes beyond just taking some tablets and being free from disease. He goes on, this picture that God paints for us in Revelation, this is what we have to look forward to, a vision of a new heaven and earth without pain and suffering, without infectious disease. And what we're trying to do in our small way, specifically related to tuberculosis, is that we have a vision for what a world could look like, and we're trying to bring that little bit about. That doesn't mean that we're going to collectively usher in this kingdom. It doesn't mean that when infectious disease is eliminated, that suddenly, boom, the kingdom comes. But in a powerful way for me, this is Justin speaking, when I try to help someone to not get tuberculosis, I know that I align my medical practice to something that I know is close to the heart of God. There is not something that modern medicine can provide. We can't defeat disease through medical advance. What is there something about my today, day-to-day that God tells me He wants for everybody? Do you see what Justin's done there? Just like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The work done here now is a pattern of what is done in the kingdom of God, the heavenly reality. Now, just, to, just to be clear and just to reiterate, our work now doesn't bring in the kingdom when I, like I'll build a bridge or write a contract or heal someone. That's not bringing... The, kingdom, that the fruit of that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't last into eternity. But instead, just like an architect's plans, our work now can be patterned on the vision for the future and the heart of God. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hence, things like, for lawyers, the pursuit of justice, for those in the medical profession, of healing, of wholeness, of beauty, those in the artists, arts, etc., These are all entirely consistent with the vision of God, the character of God, and the future with God. God's future can indeed shape and give real purpose to our work now, knowing that we are working close to the heart of God, mirroring and reflecting the character of God in His purposes for this world. So what is the purpose of our work? What is your work for? A necessary evil to be avoided? Or is there joy in work? There is no happiness except in the realisation that we've accomplished something. Is work by far and away the best prize that we have to offer, that life has to offer? Or perhaps is there something else? A vision of work that's less selfish, grander, more purposeful and profound. Many secular philosophers are realising that the search for happiness and satisfaction is illusionary. If you chase happiness, you'll never actually find it. So the more that you chase things after that makes you happy, the less satisfied you'll be. Happiness and satisfaction come actually from the side, when you're chasing and serving a purpose bigger than you. Atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett agrees when he speaks about the secret to happiness. He said, the secret to happiness is to find something bigger than you and devote your life to it. It's quite interesting because I would actually suggest that this idea lends itself more to theism than atheism because in atheism is nothing really bigger than us, but he's quite interesting because uh, he, this is the key idea to finding purpose in our work. Find something bigger than you and devote your life to it, which in the Christian gospel is serving God, serving others. Work is God's way of us feeding our face and not being dependent on us, sorry, not being dependent on others. But the deep privilege of the Christian view of story of work is that God chooses to partner with us through our work to serve others and to cultivate the world He's made. This is a profound and powerful motivation for our work because it's about 
love about others. But God's vision for work is also realistic because we know that work will be frustrating and difficult in this world of thorns and thistles. But it's still a vision with purpose and an ultimate end, the kingdom of heaven, which can, we can model, motivate and empower us today, even when work is hard. So I think we've covered a lot of material this morning, but grasping some of these ideas will help transform our view of work so that it's less about us and more about others and ultimately about serving God and His purposes in the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the privilege it is to be uh, cooperate with You in cultivating the world You've made. Help us, give us wisdom to know that this is a challenging job with a world of frustration and sin. But help us to see a greater purpose, a, ser- a purpose of serving others in and through our work to Your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.